Hey everybody, Adam Stott here. Thanks for checking out my podcast, Business Growth Secrets. You're absolutely in the right place. This podcast is going to reveal to you all of the secrets that you've been looking to discover that are going to allow you to cure your cash flow problems, attain more clients, bring in more leads for your business, and create systems and processes that give you the growth that you want. You are going to discover the business growth secrets you have been looking for that I've used to sell over 50 million pounds worth of products and services on social media and help clients everywhere to grow their businesses on the mark. So let's get started on the Business Growth Secrets podcast. A very, very inspirational man. And I think you're going to love this, this session. And I say that because about a year ago, I did a podcast with this gentleman. I was seriously impressed, really, really impressed. I thought that the, the, the content he gave was very, very, very high level. Uh, he was very, very forthright. was quite happy to talk about ups, downs, twists and turns, and, and was just an exceptional, exceptional guy, someone that I really felt when I do these podcasts that I actually could learn a lot of him, right? Really, really, really great guy. Uh, so I'm super excited. So I'm going to read this out for you now because there's quite a lot here uh, that we're going we're gonna to cover, which is uh, going to be awesome. So our next speaker has led the iconic brands as CEO of Porsche, Lamborghini, and BMW. So he's worked with all, all the major brands as a leader. Um, he's written books on leadership, the topic of leadership. Um, which are incredible. And we've got some books, as you can see, over here uh, today as well. Um, at Porsche, he was the driving force of the turnaround of, of Porsche and leading five years worth of record growth um, at BMW as well. He's recognized as one of the UK's top 40 leaders. He left BMW to set up his own technology business, which is his first business, which he grew into an international success. Uh, since then, he's built and transformed 15 different companies, and his teams have created over 3 billion, not million, that's B, billion pounds um, worth of shareholder value. So incredible, incredible success. Uh, one of his companies recently was recognized as the best private equity investment of the year. But some of the things that I think are most impressive about Kevin, who we're welcoming today, is that he's played international cricket. Um, he relaxes by playing in a rock band with his son. I think this is awesome, which I want to hear more about. He's walked both the North and South Poles. He's climbed some of the world's largest mountains to raise money for cancer research. Um, he's recently set a new world record, which he's going to tell us about today, which I'm excited to hear about. So, and he's written some amazing books on leadership and, and an amazing book actually called Catching Giants as well, um, which we're going to talk about today. So we've got someone with us that really is incredibly successful in so many different areas of his life, someone that you can learn a tremendous amount on. Good afternoon. <laughs> so as I said, I don't usually read the intro out, and I said, sorry, I'll memorise it, but then actually uh, I, I realised that I was going to need to read that. There was a lot there. There's a few facts in yeah. there, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, the trouble is, otherwise, people go online and they, they get something from the internet. And I've literally, I've been introduced before as the managing director of Ferrari. And I happen to know the MD of Ferrari, 
So they said, I'm Lazy Owen, the managing director of Ferrari. And I looked around, I thought, where's Luca? Where is he? <laughs> Kevin Gaskell. No, guys, wrong brand, wrong brand. But Well, really pleased to have you today. And, Thank you. And I think it's a, a really great opportunity for everybody in the room to learn from someone that's created so much success in business, but then also had a real great lifestyle, actually, as well, which I think is really impressive. And my lifestyle, my lifestyle is work, 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 and then a bit of work. <laughs> What is it? The only place that success comes before hard work is in the, in the dictionary. So <laughs> it's a lot of hard work. Absolutely. So, so really hearing um, about your journey, mm. um, you've written books on leadership um, yep. and been a leader of these major brands. Yep. Do you want to tell us about where it started from? How did you get into this career, build this career up? Yeah. What was it like at the beginning? So, so my, my first qualification, I always wanted to be a civil engineer, always. Preschool medical, I can remember. Going in and meeting the doctor with my mum, and the doctor said, you know what you want to do when you grow up, Sonny? And I said, yeah, I want to build bridges and roads. Don't know why, but at that age, at four or five years of age. And he said, you know what they're called? And I said, yeah, navvies. And he said, no, son, they're called civil engineers. And I said, right, I want to be a civil engineer. And so right through school... Uh, I knew what I wanted to do. Um, and, you know, you meet people who don't quite know what they want. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. But nobody in my... I come from a two-up, two-down in Manchester, right? So nobody in my family had ever been to university. Uh, but I was determined I was going to university. I wanted to be a civil engineer. And so I applied to five very unfashionable universities because I was afraid I wouldn't get the grades. I went to a really rough-ass comprehensive school. I mean, it was rough. And I thought, well, I'll never get the grades to get into a posh school. So I'm going to turn this way a bit. I'll look at them rather than look at you. Yeah, that's fine, right? no problem. <laughs> much prettier, much prettier out there. Oh, <laughs> well, that's debatable. But... <laughs> no, no, it's not. <laughs> so, so I went to rough-ass comprehensive school. I applied to five unfashionable universities. I got into one, which was Bradford. I did a, a thick sandwich pro program, um, and I absolutely loved it. I loved Bradford. I loved the course. Um, I got a very good degree. I won a scholarship. The scholarship paid for me to do an MBA because I knew I wanted to do business as well. And so in those days, you could win a scholarship, and it would pay for an MBA program, you know, which today, I don't know what an MBA costs now, but 30,000, 50,000 quid, well, they paid for it. So, wow, I'll do that. Um, and I came out, and I was an engineer building Hall 7 of the NEC, the M54 motorway, some big jobs. And, and I, I enjoyed it for two or three or four years. And then living in a caravan with a hole in the roof kind of loses its appeal after a while. And I, wasn't, I, I, was, I had this mental image of building these amazing structures and ended up putting grids in the side of roads. You know, that's the reality of building a motorway. I thought, I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. Um, and I knew... I wanted to do something that gave me a broader scope. And so I thought, what could I do? And I thought, well, there's accountancy, that's kind of broad, or law. And on the MBA, I'd done a bit of both of those. I didn't enjoy law, so I didn't want to do law. I thought, accountancy, yeah, I'll do accountancy. So I started looking for a job where I could use my engineering skills and some degree of accountancy. And it's a company called Dow Corning, big silicone manufacturer, and they were looking for somebody with kind of my spec. And I applied, and I got the job as a company accountant and went, oh, shit, and went on the way home, went into, it wasn't, there was no Amazon in those days, went into WH Smith's and bought two teach-yourself accountancy books. This is, 
This is absolutely true. Two teacher self-accountancy books, and I spent six weeks really swatting on accountancy, and I joined a company as a company accountant. And I studied certified accountancy at night school, and it was fine. And I did four years there, and then thought, I don't want to do this for the rest of my life either. And, but I loved cars, and I loved sport. And they sent me on a career self-management program. And this very highly paid careers counsellor, they sent me to Nice, south of France, wonderful, four days in south of France, meeting this counsellor. And she was great, and she said to me, you know what, you should either get a job where it's something to do with cars, or something to do with sport. And I thought, oh, no shit, Sherlock, great. So, um, so I started looking, and Porsche, the company, were looking for somebody with engineering skills and financial skills to go out and teach their dealer network how to run businesses. So I applied, and I got the job, and I joined as a regional manager, and I was teaching dealers how to manage businesses. Um, and I grew through the ranks, and the business got into trouble. And in 1992, I think, about 1992, it was in terrible trouble. Porsche was in dreadful trouble. And they fired the board. And the, the Porsche is a family-owned company. It's owned by the Porsche family and the Pieck family, and they are cousins under Ferry Porsche. They're cousins. Pieck's also happen to own Volkswagen. So these are pretty wealthy people, you know. And I got invited in to meet the family, and they just fired the whole board, and they called for me, and I was kind of the operations manager. And I phoned my wife, and I said, I'll be home in a minute. <laughs> and she said, why? And I said, well, I'm just about to get fired. <laughs> and we had a big mortgage and two small kids, and she panicked, and I said, it's fine, we'll find a way, don't worry, we'll be fine. And I went in and met the family, and there was about eight people there. And I'd met a couple of them previously at board meetings because I was the one who was called in to give the bad news at the board meeting. And, and to give you an idea of the trouble we were in, there were 32 brands in the marketplace at that point. And out of 32 brands in customer satisfaction, we were number 32. We, we were Porsche, right? This is Porsche, the great brand. We were losing 20% on every car we sold. Wow. We had three years, three years, new car, unsold inventory. We had three years' worth of cars. We were hiding cars everywhere. We had cars in warehouses, airfields. And, you know, cars are not like fine red wine. They do not improve by sitting around for three years. <laughs> um, and we were that close to going under. I mean, really that close. And they, they, they invited me in, and they started giving me a hard time. And I walked in with my finance colleague, who was a German guy, who just joined about three or four, five, six months before. I can't remember now. And we got on really well, but he'd been dropped in by basically German board to see what the heck was going on in this British company. We walked in together, and we'd, we'd had a conversation beforehand. And I said, you know, we could fix this thing. We could actually fix this. And he said, how? And we'd worked up a plan between ourselves. We walked in, and they started giving me a really hard time. I was 32 years old, and I thought, oh, blow this. You're going to fire me. That's fine, but I'm going to tell you what I think. And so they started giving me a tough time, and I said, look, you could fix this thing. Don't give me a hard time. You should be embarrassed. You're, you're the supervisory board. You own this thing. Don't give me a hard time. You could fix this. And how would you fix it? And I said, well, here's what we would do. And I walked in there expecting a 10-minute exit interview, and I was there for four hours drawing on flip charts. Here's what we do. We do this with this. We do that with that. That's what we do with the brand, and here's what we do with the dealer network. And then they asked me to leave the room. Me and Armin, we've been there together. They asked, us, they asked us to leave the room. 
And I said to him, oh, well, okay, well, at least we told them. He said, no, no, they were listening. I didn't speak a word of German at that point. They said, oh, no, no, they were listening. And uh, 10 minutes later, they asked us back in the room. I thought, okay, here we go. And they said, right, we have made our decision. I thought, yeah, I'm sure you have. Um, you are the new managing director. You are the new finance director. <clears throat> That's the plan. Make it happen. <laughs> <laughs> Me? <laughs> yeah. Go away. Make it happen. Wow. So I phoned my wife and I said, I'm not coming home. <laughs> just yet now, we've been together since we were 18 right so she knows me pretty well she, she said why I said well they've just made me managing director she said what I said the whole thing <laughs> <laughs> it's absolutely true my wife is a Yorkshire lass right never my wife has never seen a glass half full they're always half empty from Yorkshire. <laughs> <clears throat> and she said they're just looking for an excuse to fire you and I said, Penn, they could have fired me four hours ago. And, and so I took over Porsche. We did what we said we'd do, and we can talk about that in a minute. But we turned the business around, and four years later, with the same team of people, we were number one in the market. We were making, we were the most profitable car business in the market, making 20% on sales. We had no um, stock, and we had a one-year forward order bank. And we just did it by what I consider to be common sense, but by engaging the team, really inspiring the team, because all the people who worked there Loved the product, loved the brand. But when I asked them, how many of you, how many people, here's a question, how many people in this room have driven a Porsche car? Wow, far more than in my staff at that point. Really? Yeah. Wow. It was very small. So the first thing, you know, we did simple stuff at first, like take people out driving, we turned to safe places, but drive the cars, get passionate, get excited. So we turned that one around. Um, and then I got to the point five years later where, honestly, I was bored. We'd done it. It was there. It was all fixed. And I was a bit bored. And Porsche said, well, we'd like you to run America. My wife said, I don't want to go to America. So, okay, we're not going to America. Well, we'd like you to run Japan. No, thanks. Don't want to go to Tokyo. Ugh. So a BMW knocked on the door and said, we love what you did there. Our managing director's moving on. We need a new chief exec. Would you come and do it? And that was, that was basically the interview. Would you come and do it? And I said, yeah, actually, I'll tell you exactly what I said. I said, if you told me the interview was in Munich and I had to walk there, I'd ask you for 10 minutes to change my shoes. Does that tell you how keen I am? <laughs> so I joined BMW, big business. It was a 5 billion, 5 billion turnover business. Porsche had been a few hundred million. And I went in there and I was given a plan and I said, there's the plan. We love what you did at Porsche, but... BMW GB is the second biggest cash generator in the world. Kev, we love what you did at Porsche, but don't knock it off the rails because it's doing okay. And when I went in, it was doing okay, but it had kind of lost its way. It, it, it was very... Um, arrogance the wrong word. It was just very sure of itself. It just yeah. believed that we were okay, you know. We're okay, we'll just carry on. And I said, no. I said, look, you know, everyone's after our customers. Lexus are coming. Jaguar's coming. Audi's coming. Everyone wants our customers. Guys, we've got to go to a new level. And I got the leadership team together, and we had the first conversation. The COO quit on me. He said, you're crazy. You'll spoil it. I'm out of here. He quit. Um, the others just looked at me like I'd got off a spaceship. But I said, I think we can go to another level. Um, and basically, we did the same. Again, we'll talk about it in a minute. We did the same that we did at Porsche, which was set a goal, become world-class, become truly world-class, look at every part of the business, and let's understand what we can do that's different. 
They were kidding themselves. They were fooling themselves. I mean, I remember asking a question, um, where's the corporate sales team? And they, they looked at me and said, Kev, we're BMW. We don't do corporate sales. That's for Ford and Vauxhall and those people. We don't do corporate sales. I said, okay, let me ask you a different question. What percentage of our sales go through a corporate body? Oh, 65%. <laughs> well, then we do corporate sales. Oh, no, but we don't call it that. I said, okay, let's not call it that, but let's look at it differently. Let's change the way we do it. So we had a major change of philosophy in our corporate sales team about providing more value. And cut a long story short, again, with the same team of people, um, everything I do is with the same, with, not, not, with, not with my team, but the people who are in the business. I don't go and bring in McKinsey or anything. The answer is in the room. Um, with the same team of people, uh, the plan I was given was to grow at 4% per annum. And over the next four and a half years, I was there four and a half years, we grew at 500%. Sorry, that's not true. We grew revenue by 80%, but we grew operating profit by 500%. And we just, I, I thought we just did the basics. I thought we just did it do it better. Do the basics, but do them well. And customer satisfaction went up and up and up. Sales went up and up and up. And instead of growing at four pound compound, four percent compound, you know, we grew by eighty percent. And then I got to the age of forty. Um, am I going on for too long? No, no, right. no I'm loving it. <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm boring you, tell me. I got to the age of forty, and I'd been running car businesses then for ten years. I'd been in Porsche for 10, and I was in BMW for best part of five. Um, and I went off up Everest. And you sit in a tent for a long time when you climb these big mountains, waiting for a weather gap. And, and I, I realized I didn't want to go back. And, and when I analyzed myself, I'd been driving into work in the morning, into Porsche in the morning, and I'd been diverting off and going to the gym or going. So I just, I was bored. I didn't want to do it anymore. And so I, I we were sitting on the mountain for weeks, and I decided what I actually wanted to do was to build my own company. And I started looking around for ideas, and familiar now with Kazoo and Cinch, these people who are selling cars online, they'll fail. Just, you heard it here first. Well, they nearly failed already. But back then, nobody was doing that. And so I thought, you know, it's this funny internet thing, and I'm sure we could do something more with it and I'm gonna go away and I'm gonna build an online retail business. Um, and so I quit. And BMW went nuts. You can't quit, you've signed a contract. Actually, I haven't signed it, if you look. You gave, <laughs> <laughs> you gave me my new contract. Oh, thank you very much. You gave me my new, thanks ever so much. You gave me my new contract, but I haven't signed it. And I'm, I'm going. And so I went off and uh, created a business called Cars Direct. And the idea was to work with car dealers, because I'd been spent 15 years of my life working then with car dealers, work with car dealers to retail cars online. But car dealers hadn't got a clue. They didn't understand what the internet was. And I got some investment from USA. Uh, and they sent me $25 million. Absolutely true. Tell us your bank account, Kev. Why? We're sending you some money. Okay, here's the company bank account. This is absolutely true. Here's the company bank account. Whoosh. Following day, got a bank on the phone. Do you know that $25 million, this is God's truth, 
do you know $25 million is trying to get into your account? We can't approve it. We've got it on hold. No, I have no idea. Phone the company, went through all the rigmarole. They sent me 25 million bucks to get this company going. So we started the business, realized it wasn't going to fly for a whole bunch of reasons, and said, you know what, we can, we can think of a different model. The Americans said, actually, we've changed, we've changed our mind. We don't want to be in Europe. Can you send our money back, please? So we sent back 24 million, 750,000, whatever it was. Kept a bit for ourselves as redundancy pay. We bought the business from them for a pound, and we converted it into a platform, which we put behind all the big, um, all the big leasing companies. Because sourcing cars, if you had a company car at that point, you would call your, if you're in a big company, you call your transport manager, who would call Avis, and Avis would call 200 people who'd all go trying to find car. We just created a platform, and the platform became very successful, and we sold that business five years, four years later for a hundred million quid. Nice. I only held a small percentage because I was stupid. So if anybody wants to know about, <laughs> if anybody wants to know about giving away equity, talk to me because I, <laughs> I gave away a shed load of it stupidly and then did all the work to build the business. I gave it to the investors. So my investors made a hundred X on their money, a hundred X. And some of them put in 100,000 pounds. Go work your own numbers. 10 million quid they went away with in four years. That's not a bad return on 100 grand, is it? It's a nice return. <laughs> so that was my first tech company. And then I went into other tech companies uh, as an investor or as a chairman. And so now I, I've built, I think it's 15 now. Um, today I've got five technology businesses. Two of them are in South Africa because I like South Africa, I was down there speaking at a conference like this, and somebody said, you know that stuff you talk about, do you actually do it? I said, yeah, that's what I do every day. Um, so I, I run five companies today. Say so I run them is a grand way of saying, today I'm the chairman, uh, I have chief execs who do the job, or some, yeah, senior execs who do the job. Um, and and you know, we, we build companies, so that's my journey. Nice. So when we go back, and we look at the philosophy of the leadership, you said about the common sense. Mm. Remember when we talked previously, you had some really good simple principles that you put in place in, in all of that journey, didn't you, within Porsche, within BMW, you did the same things yeah. in, a, in a common sense way, which I really felt could be transferred to businesses of all sizes, especially your planning aspect, which I really love sure. the concept of. Sure. I mean, look, to put it all in perspective, I know that there are businesses in this room of different sizes. My smallest business today employs three people. You know, I've got small companies. My biggest business um, was one I took over five years ago when it was just about dead. It's a telecoms company and it was dead. And the reason I was asked to go in there was the investors in that business were high net worth individuals who'd given their money to a corporate finance advisor who I happened to know because he'd sat on one of my boards and he'd put five million quid of their money into this company and the money had gone, but the business hadn't, hadn't gone anywhere. In fact, it was going nowhere. And so in a bit of a panic, he called me and said, could you just go and have a look, go and see what you find? And I went in there and it was a business of about 12 people of which six quit the minute I walked in. Um, <laughs> Well, I just said, well, you can't carry on like this. Well, we're very happy doing it like this. I'm sure you are spending lots of client money, but uh, investor money, but we need to find a different way. Anyway, that business at the time 
five years ago, was had a monthly revenue of about thirty thousand pounds, something like that. Um, last month, no, June was, was our biggest month. Uh, we just turned over seven million in June, so we're now the third biggest in the UK market. We're a telecoms company, B two B telecoms. We're the third biggest behind uh, Virgin Media O2, VMO2, and um, OpenReach, so we're number three in the market. But I'm, what I'm most proud of in that company is not so much that we've grown. We're, we're growing at hundreds of percent a year. And next year, we'll double revenue again, and the year after, we'll double it again. And we know that. We know that. Not guessing. We know that because we've already got those contracts. We just have to build the network and deliver on them. So we know what our growth will be over the next 12, 24 months. But what I'm most proud of in that business is we're now 200 people in-house and 400 people who we work with as suppliers and contractors. And we've just won the prize as the best company to work for in the telecom sector against massive competition. So what I'm most proud of is we've been able to create the culture where people want to be there. They want to have fun. We do have fun. It's a fun business. It's in Warrington, um, which is just outside Manchester for those southerners in the room. <laughs> but it's not a fashionable place. It's not a hip happening you know, um, tech center, it's on an industrial estate in Warrington, <laughs> but it's a fun place. So, so the principles that I apply, I have three words, commit, connect, and create. Those are my three words. Commit, connect, create. And they came about, those three words came about because I was asked to speak uh, first time I ever did a professional speaking gig, I was asked to speak about rebuilding BMW. And I tried to encapsulate five years of strife into a snappy presentation. And I realized that the first thing is get the commitment, make sure everyone, everyone in the team is committed to it. And if they're not, then don't be here. You know what? If you don't want to do it, it doesn't make you a bad person, but go somewhere else and do what you want to do. And I'm just very upfront with people. And, and people say to me, do you fire people? I say, well, not very often. I just help them out the door. <laughs> no. Most people fire themselves. They fire themselves. Because they either don't, they don't want to be there, or they're not turning up for work, which suggests they don't want to be there. They just don't want to be there. So let's counsel them on finding somewhere to go that they want to do. You know, they're not bad people. And I, I've, I have fired people who are still friends today and they're so happy they went off to do other things so it's not firing is not it's not about firing it's about transferring people out and transferring people in you know getting the right team balance so the first is the commitment to make sure everyone in the room everyone in the team understands what we are committed to achieve and we build that together um i, I remember at bmw running the workshop where we decided where we were going to go and I had about this many people in the room this was all the senior leadership team and they thought I would, they, honestly, they thought I'd just got off a spaceship because I was questioning what they'd done so successfully. And I described it as, yeah, what you've done successfully is travel up a fur-lined rut. Because it's all very comfortable, but you're not going anywhere. You're not developing. You're just going up this rut. So the first is commit. What are we committed to achieve? The second is connect. And that's about making sure everybody in the team knows what the plan is, and we make our plans really simple, really simple. They're on one page, they're on the wall. Commit, connect. 
So the connection is that everyone can see how they make a difference. Everyone's amazing. People know how to do their job far better than I do. I ran a boat company. I don't know rock all about boats, but it was, they'd made losses for 10 years. And this team was so proud of what they built. They built these beautiful yachts, but they'd made losses for 10 years. The day I joined, they'd gone through 13 rounds of redundancy. My first team meeting with everybody is 1,300 people, which was 1,298 blokes and two ladies. <laughs> it was a, and it was unionized. It was a really old school company. And um, when I talked to them about what are they committed to, I asked them, what do you want to do? And they said, well, we want to build the best motor yachts in the world. The company's called Fairline. We want to build the best motor yachts in the world. And I said, great, why don't you? And they said, because of you. <laughs> I said, guys, I've been here a week. They said, yeah, but leadership, management, oh, they don't know what to do, they don't know what they're doing, ah, la, 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 blah, 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 blah. And, and it was very aggressive. And I had, a, I had the production director standing next to me. He's a big bloke, six foot four, big scouser fella. And I said, Joe, stand close, because I'm going to get slapped before I get out of this room. And, and I said to the union chief, who was standing about where you are, about there, giving me abuse. And I said, look, why don't you and me go and have a cup of tea and talk about this? And let me understand what you... He said, no. I said, well, all right. No, I said, why don't you come to my office and have a cup of tea? And he said, no. I said, why not? He said, I've never been to head office in my life, and I'm not going to start now. Head office was 75 yards away. <laughs> He'd never been there. He'd never been there. So I said, okay, I'll come to your office. I don't have an office. I said, all right, where do you want to meet? And we just broke down the barriers, and we got the commitment was there. They all wanted to build something that was special. The connection was how do you get people to work together? And that's the simple plan. And the third piece is create. And I call it creating magic. And that's when we're all in this together and we're all supporting each other and we're actually having a laugh. Because you know what? You know, they talk about black humor in wartime. This book is about uh, something I did two years ago now. And there, there are moments, when you get the book, you'll see there are moments in there which are pretty bleak pretty bleak but we kept laughing we kept laughing at it and we get through it so we stick together and we create magic because we trust each other and you have to build that trust and 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 it's about each of us going the extra not the extra mile but the extra 10 yards you know the extra bit so the the, the boat company 10 years of losses and you'll never fix that blah, 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 blah. 14 months later, 14 months, same team of people, we were back in profit. I didn't do it, they did. All I did was give them the opportunity to contribute. And that is that, what are we committed to? How do we connect? How do, how do I, how do I as a simple electrician on boats, we were building big boats. I mean, these were boats, you know, as big as this room, 78 foot yachts, $10 million a pop. And um, it was about letting people understand that they, they make a difference. So, again, it's, it's, it's not complicated, but it is about being honest and truthful to those principles. And as a leader, and you're all leaders, as a leader, you have to exemplify those principles because the minute you get it wrong, they throw it back at you tenfold. So you've got to live those principles. And that's not to say that I get it right all the time because I said to Adam earlier on, I've made every mistake in the book. 
In fact, I've made every mistake in every book. I have got it wrong so many times, and sometimes embarrassingly so. And afterwards you think, how on earth did I get it that wrong? But you know, we all learn. We all learn. And it's a case of picking yourself up, dusting yourself off, and then going again. Just going again. You know, if you give up, you never get anywhere. But the, the business, the, 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 the business I'm talking about, the telecoms business, is called ITS technology, ITS. And people say, what does ITS stand for? No idea, not a clue. Even the founder of the business would never tell me. He left the business, but I don't know what it stands for. But I was, before I walked in here earlier on, I was talking to, we were just in the middle of a, a, a fund round at the minute. And I was talking to our corporate finance advisor, and we were laughing because we're growing so quickly. We, we're eating up the capital. We, we, it's, not, it's not working capital as such. We are building fiber networks. So they're, they're, we're turning cash into fiber networks. There are assets on the balance sheet. Three years ago, I didn't know if we'd survive each month. It, I was writing checks at the end of each month to pay people. If my wife had ever found out <laughs> how much money I put into that company, oh my goodness, I'd never... Well, I still never hear for the last of it, but she still thinks I'm putting money in, which I'm not. <laughs> but the point I'm making is that company, if we hadn't been battle-hardened as a team and been committed and created such a team spirit, we could have given up pretty much at any time in the first three years. And people come now, and we, we've just moved into a, an office, which is really lovely. It's a, it's a square box on industrial set, but we've decorated it really nicely. Not expensively, just really nicely. Made it a bit wacky. And people come in and say, oh, you're so lucky to be this successful. It's like, if you knew how many sleepless nights, how many weekends we'd worked, how many days we started at seven in the morning, at 10 at night, we're still scratching our heads on how we're going to pay the bills this month. And it was, it was that close. And yet this year we'll make, well, it depends what we decide to declare, but probably. <laughs> well, no, uh, always manage your investors' expectations. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they think we're going to make six million profit. We'll make six million profit. We could make 10, but I'm not telling them that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll carry a chunk of it forward to make sure we hit next year's numbers. On, but, on leadership, Kevin, yeah. how, how does somebody, because you've written a great book on leadership, how does somebody... Two do, great books on leadership. <laughs> <laughs> so how, how does someone as a small business owner lead themselves first? How, sorry, how, how does somebody lead themselves first? Because before they're going to lead teams yeah. and they're going to build those teams, they've got to lead themselves. Yeah. How would you describe that? You've obviously very driven. Have you experienced, did you experience challenges with that over time? Oh, yeah. I mean, look, I, I said it when I got, I knew when I was at Dow Corning that I didn't want to be an accountant all my life, so I walked away. I knew after 10 years at Porsche, I'd had enough, so I walked away. I knew after five years at BMW, I'd had enough. I walked away. The press went mad. I've still got the, the trade press now. Uh, and They're brutal, the trade press at the moment. Well, they said they couldn't understand, you know, this guy who's done all this, that, and t'other has just walked away. What the heck? What's? I mean, honestly, the stories. I'd been caught with my fingers in the till, was one. I'd had a nervous breakdown, was another. Been having a relationship with a chairman's wife. <laughs> and making a bad job of it, was another. <laughs> all, these, 
all these crazy stories came out. But the truth was, I told you, I went and sat in a tent for six weeks and decided I don't want to do that anymore. So I, I went somewhere else. So it starts with being passionate yourself. If you're in a business, whatever your business is, if you're in a business that you're passionate about, then you know, you'll put up with stuff. If you're not passionate about it, then it's hard work. It's really hard work. If you, if you get up in the morning and people say to me, define that. And I say, well, okay. I call it inspiration. I think there's a big difference between motivation and inspiration. I can motivate you all right now. Easy peasy. Adam told me that I can give you all a thousand pounds at the end of this talk. And you can spend, you can <laughs> spend to come it. through me first. <laughs> <laughs> and you can spend it on whatever you want to spend it, right? Well, you're motivated for a day or two. Great. A thousand quid. But that's not, you'll forget about it next week because you've spent it. Whereas in business, you know, people say, well, give us a pay rise, we'll be motivated. Yeah, for a short while, and then you forget. <laughs> Inspiration is when people are really engaged and enjoying what they're doing. When as leaders, we've created that culture because we ourselves are inspired. We're absolutely inspired. The CEO of ITS Technology is an amazing guy. He's the most inspirational guy I've worked with in a long time. And he's inspirational because he really wants to build. He was at OpenReach. He was the CEO of OpenReach Business Division. And he wants to stick it up OpenReach, right? <laughs> so he's really motivated to build. Now, OpenReach is the, is, used to be British. Well, it is British Telecom. But it used to be the national provider. You know, it, it, it's got, it owns all the assets. So Darren is very passionate about creating something of long-term value. So to manage yourself, you first got to ask yourself, am I passionate about this? And, and I say, my definition of it is, if somebody in my team on a Sunday night, instead of thinking, oh, work tomorrow, they think, oh, great, I'm going to work tomorrow. I'm going to go and build that. We're going to go and take that forward. Then we're winning. But when people don't want to come in, and you can see it, you know, if, particularly if it's a small team, you see the person who comes in 10 and 20 and 30 minutes late regularly. And, you know, it, you see people who aren't passionate about it. And, and that's an issue. You have to have that conversation. But it starts with yourself. Are you passionate about what you do? And I am still passionate about what I do. Um, and so it, it rubs off on people. You know, people, people get excited because I'm excited. And if I walked in with my chin on the floor and ooh, the world's coming to an end, that, that message transmits through the organization. And you can't fake it. You can't come in and fake it and then go get in the car and think, thank goodness for that. You know, you've, got, you've, got to, you've got to feel it. And if you don't feel it, be honest. I was honest at BMW. I'd had enough. I'd had enough of being told what to do by a big corporate body. And I didn't want to do it anymore. I just didn't want to do it. And I worked on a basis, I'm 40 years old, I've done it. It's on my CV, Porsche, BMW, Lamborghini. Bought, we bought Lamborghini, here's the story, we bought Lamborghini, the company, for 100,000 pounds. Bought a company for 100 grand. Because that tells you how much trouble they were in. <laughs> and it was at the same time as at Porsche, so it's Porsche who bought it, right? I needed another, it's, it's in the early days when we didn't have enough, couldn't sell enough cars to pay the bills. And I wanted another brand, so I bought Lamborghini. And it was a car crash. 
Um, but we turned it around. Look at it today. I mean, it's now owned by Volkswagen. But it was that business was all about passion. Because they create anyone here got a Lamborghini. Good choice. <laughs> terrible cars. They were terrible cars. I mean, now they're Audis. It's different. But they were terrible cars. <laughs> but it was all about passion, and it was absolutely about passion. So. You start by managing your own passion. That's where it begins. And turning those teams around. I remember you said to me about your, your 100 days mm. that you worked out, and I thought that was a yeah. really interesting concept that was really transferable yeah. to, to businesses. Could you explain how you put that 100 days in place and how that works? So if, if you want all the background to this, and I'm not trying to sell your books here because you can't buy it anymore because it's out of print, but I wrote a book called Inspired Leadership. And Inspired Leadership... You can get it as a used book, but I'm just rewriting it, bringing it up to speed with some of the new companies we built, and it'll come out next year as re-inspired leadership. But in there, I go into detail all the processes about how we fixed these companies. What you actually, what you actually do? It's all very well me sitting here on this chair and spouting, <laughs> but the truth is, what do you do when you go in on Monday morning? You know, what you actually listen. He sat there. Now, what does he actually do? That's all. That's all in the book, Inspired Leadership. But a tool that I use, as well as the commit, connect, create, the connect is a thousand-day plan, a thousand days. Not three years. I don't talk about three-year plans because if, if it's a three-year plan, what's the subset of three years? Well, it's one year. So people think in years. Whereas if I talk about a thousand days, we break it down into days. So every project that we're working on, and I literally just, I, should have, I could have shown you the photographs. I'm chairing a company right now called Radical Motorsports. We, we're the world's biggest manufacturer of racing cars. And again, a bit of a basket case, go in there a year ago. And the team were just shaping themselves up, really great team, but they hadn't got a structure. So I've given them a structure. And I, I was there last week, and they proudly showed me the War Room, W-A-R, Weekly Action Review, we call it the War Room. And the thousand-day plan is now on the wall. And they're all excited, and they said, it's great. Everyone's excited. Yeah, I know. People are. When you, when, when, it's a small company, right? It's 150 people. And we build racing cars. And everyone who's there is very passionate about racing cars, but they all want to know where the company's going because the motor industry is facing a lot of challenges. I know I'm getting off track. I'll come back to it. The motor industry is facing a lot of challenges right now. You know, do we... Does the industry move from uh, internal combustion engine, petrol and diesel, to electric? And if we do, what's the impact? And, and I'm one of the people who say, well, we're not sure yet, because everyone's saying electric's the way forward. Yeah, but hang on. If you actually track the emissions and the pollution and everything else and the child labor and everything else that goes with getting the materials that go into battery technology and, 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 mm. it ain't that simple. And, you know, there's a lot of analysis that says by the time electric vehicles got on the road, and I'm not defending one side or the other, I'm genuinely open about it, but by the time an electric vehicle's got on the road, it's already given off about 50,000 miles, a combustion engine, 50,000 miles worth of emissions. So for the first 50,000 miles, you're making no gain. And, and my frustration is only that the politicians who are telling us to move to EVs are the same ones who... 15 years ago, told us we should all move to diesel. And now diesel is, you know, <laughs> is the, 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 the horror story. So I'm just skeptical 
that the, the answer is that simple. So, motor industry is facing a lot of challenges. Where do you go? Well, in this particular business, because they're, they're, they are building racing cars with internal combustion engines, they've got to make a long-term decision because as we currently stand after 2030, in the UK, you won't be allowed to sell a car, a new car, with an internal combustion engine. And our race cars have got internal combustion engines. So we're facing this strategic dislocation. Where are we going to go? So I use a thousand-day plan as the tool. And we build this very, I keep calling it, very simple plan of the key areas we're going to focus on. And they, they have timetables against them in days, in days. And then we count down. So the plan was on the wall. It was there last Thursday. The plan's on the wall. And there's a great lady called Amber who is running the thing. I said, Amber, what's missing? And I'd given her all the stuff, and she'd got bits out of my book, and I'd given her stuff up that I'd used. I said, what's missing? And she went around, and she did fabulous. I mean, she'd really done a great job. I said, what's missing? I said, I don't know. I said, where's the counter? Oh, okay, we didn't have a counter. Now, the counter gets the heartbeat up. Because people realize every day you count down. You know, today it says 1,000. Tomorrow it says 999. 998. And 100 days pass really, really quickly. And 200 days pass really, really quickly. So we use this 1,000-day plan to get the heart rate of the business up and let people see that we want to do stuff in, in really short order, not drip it out over months and months and months. No, no. And the 100-day plan is where we kick it off. So what are we going to do in the first 100 days? Now we're launching this thing. I speak at a lot of conferences now, all around the world speaking at very posh, very fancy, big company conferences. And, you know, you've got businesses, they might have spent a million quid, two million quid on this conference, flying people in from all around the world. The stage sets are amazing. And, and the brief kind of goes like this. I say, when do you want me to speak? Oh, we want you to come on at the end, Kevin, rev them all up. And I say, okay, show me the agenda. So the agenda is typically the CEO stands up first. This is absolutely true. And he's supposed to, it's usually a he, he's supposed to speak for 20 minutes, but he speaks for 40. So I'm sitting at the back watching people's phones come out, right? Then the CFO comes on and blinds everybody with numbers. <laughs> so two phones come out then. <laughs> Everyone switches off. We're talking numbers. People are not inspired by numbers. I, people are really not inspired by numbers. If I told my team, hey, guys, we need another 2% market penetration and another 3% return on net assets, they'd go, we have no idea what you're talking about. No, that's, that doesn't inspire people. So the, the conferences usually go, CEO drips on for too long. Then the CFO comes on. Then people come on from the product and they talk about their new products, but they make it so long and boring and they're not professional speakers, so it, everyone gets bored. And then they say to me, Kev, come on at the end and rev them all up after they're all comatose. <laughs> and I say, put me on at the beginning. Put me on at the beginning and let me talk about creating something extraordinary, about believing in becoming world-class. And, and I said, I don't talk numbers. I, I, I won't talk about that. But what I'll talk about is saying to people, you could do this. You could build something that's extraordinary. And that's, that's where I start in business. So the hundred, so, sorry, so, the, so they do all this stuff and they spend millions on this conference 
And then they go back to the office and I, and I say to them, and what happened? Well, it was the same old, same old, wasn't it, really? You know, we had the, we've got a new strap line. Yeah, and <laughs> what does it mean? Well, it doesn't mean anything. Because as I say, no, no, make it, turn it the other way around. Put the effort into engaging the people in the plan. And then we can present it in a church hall. It doesn't matter. And so the 100-day plan is about getting the activity level up. So we agree which things we're going to do in the first 100 days to make this plan come alive. And usually, it's about saying to people, what are the things that are bugging you most? What are the things? I took, I took on a data company, and the biggest thing that bugged 80% of the people in the business most, because 80% of people were entering data, was the fact that the blinking computer was so slow. It was technical data. And they put stuff in, and then they had to wait 15 seconds for a response. And it drove them all nuts. But we were talking about, when I got there, they were talking about, oh, we're going to have this product and that product. And this team were all sitting there saying, bloody computer doesn't work. Right, let's sort that out first. So when we sorted all that out, and they had instantaneous response in the computers, well, they believe it then, because we're actually doing stuff. And people say to me, what was, the, what was the biggest thing that you did that made a difference? And I said, well, I can give you some examples. And one example I use is BMW. Because I used to walk around a building. We had a big building and a huge parts warehouse. And you know why we sell you cars? We sell you cars so you buy parts. Because the margin on cars is 10%. The margin on parts is 50 60%. So we want you to buy parts. And I used to walk around a building. And my, my predecessor didn't. He was known as Lord... I won't tell you his name, but he was known as Lord Jones. Because he was... It was very state, a great guy. I mean, really great guy, but his approach was to sit in his office and he was very lordly and he'd wear a cravat and it was, all very, it was all very different to me. And I walked around the building and the guys and girls in the business used to tell me what the issues were. I'd ask them, what's going on? What would you if this was your business, what would you change? And they'd tell me. And I walked in the past warehouse one day and I said, if this was your business, I said, one lad, we were talking about football because you have to strike up a rapport. And there's always a scarf hanging. Oh, who's the Manchester United support? I am, why? Oh, just asking. Rough season, eh? <laughs> Who do you support, Kev? I support Leeds. So you want to talk rough season, talk to me, mate. <laughs> but in this instance, I said to him, if, if, if this were your business, what would you change? And he said, I'd take that wall out. I said, you'd what? He said, you see that wall there? Massive warehouse, massive. He said, I'd take that wall out. I said, why would you do that? And he said, stand here and watch. And the warehouse was basically divided into two halves. And you had forklift trucks moving stuff around and then in the middle we had this wall but it wasn't a real wall it was expermet you know expermet metal you can see through bolted to the stanchions I don't quite know why it was there bolted but it created a wall and he said stand there and watch and these forklift trucks were picking stuff up and then they had to go down this wall through the doorway it was 50 yards that way come up the other side and do what they do he said there you go he said we just wasted a minute of that forklift truck's driver's time and he does that a hundred times a day <laughs> and I said, I said to this guy, I said, what are you doing at the weekend? He said, why? I said, <laughs> seriously. He said, why? I said, do you want to come in and help me take that wall down? And he said, you're serious? I said, yeah, I'm serious. So we got builders in and we took the wall out. Now, it wasn't the fact I took the wall out. It was the fact that he'd made a suggestion and we acted on it immediately. You could see it. It was, there it was. You could watch it. The story went through, through the business like wildfire. And so people were coming up with ideas. 
Well, if people are coming up with ideas, that's wonderful, but those ideas have got to be ideas that help you get to where you want to go. So the thousand-day plan is, that's where we're going. We start there, work back to here, because that's a straight line. If I'm there, I want to come back to here. But then I'm inviting everybody, because you know how to do your job better than I do. I'm just the CEO. I don't know anything. You know, the CEO is the only person in a business who never gets an induction. <laughs> you join and everyone thinks you know what to do. You don't have a bloody clue what to do. Just be CEO. So, you know, you walk in and it's all a bit scary for a while. People know how to do their job and they know what frustrates them. And if we can engage their knowledge and their creativity, that's the create bit. So when you start to respond to their create, that's when the world starts to move faster. So the 100 days is the first part of the 1,000-day plan when we give people the opportunity to make a real... We, we identify what are the things that are really upsetting you. We call it a whinge wall. Again, it's in the book. Whinge wall. There's a whinge wall. We call it whinge wall. Right on there, every whinge you've got. <laughs> Don't be afraid. Just write on what cheeses you off, and then we'll deal with it. And when we ran the workshop for BMW, and I, I said to people, right, there's the whinge wall, and Maybe there's the ideas not. wall. For the first half a day, nobody wrote on the whinge You know, they're all, well, I'm not going to write in the whinge <laughs> wall. But once they start, it, it rolls. And you get all these things up there that you didn't know were cheesing people off. You just didn't know. It was, you know, crazy stuff that was easy fixed. Crazy stuff. Oh, why don't we, why don't we do that? I don't know. Nobody's ever asked before. Well, can we do it? Yeah, right, do it. And so we, we literally, at the end of the workshop, and I do this in every workshop, at the end of the workshop, as we build our plan, we go back to the whinge wall, and we take every whinge, and we read it out. Right, um, there's no parking at the office. Okay, what are we doing about that? Yeah, we've got a plan. And stuff that is often nothing to do with building the business, it's just what cheeses people off. ITS technology, the biggest issue in the last three months is we've we built up the staff and people are getting parking tickets because you're not allowed to park in this industrial estate except in the car parks. And so our staff are getting parking tickets. Well, we're nice people, so we pay the ticket for them, but we know we've got to find a solution. So what we've done is negotiate another car park that's, I don't know, 150 yards away. Oh, and there's another thing. Talk about living the principles. When I first started going there, they'd reserve a space for me next to the door. There's the chairman's space. And I said, I'll take that away. If I'm not there early enough to get a parking space, I'm 120 yards away with everyone else. It's no big deal. It won't kill me to walk 120 yards. But don't reserve a space right outside the door for me because that's, that's not on. That's, that's not who we are. So just little things, principles. Which I think are really helpful for everybody in the room to start to understand. I love the concept of the thousand days, breaking it down. I think no matter what size your business is, for you to forward thinking that and cross the days down with your objectives will get you so much more focused. And if you start to involve your teams in that, it can create a massive, massive impact for you and your businesses. Something you should all be looking to implement and do 100%. And we've got this uh, wonderful book, Kevin, that we brought in as well. So outside business, you know, what, what do you do for downtime? What do you do? My, my head is full. Uh, I'm not an early morning person. I'm really not. Um, but I wake up at 5 o'clock thinking about business. And um, 
to, to, to get myself away from that, I go off and I do expeditions. And expeditions, whether it's Everest or North Pole, South Pole, whatever it is, this one, um, they take a lot of planning. Um, this one, called Catching Giants, this book was uh, of an expedition we did in 2019 into 20. And I've done the mountains, I've done the poles, done various other things. And then I've got a mate who um, said to me, Kev, I know what you should do. What's that? He said, you should row across the Atlantic. And I looked at him. There's a guy called Peter Van Ketz. He's a professional adventurer. That's what he does for a living. And uh, we were speaking together at a conference in South Africa. And he said, he said, Kev, you should row across the Atlantic. I said, Peter, I don't know anything about rowing. I don't know anything about the Atlantic. I don't know anything about navigation, survival at sea. Yeah, Kev, but you'd love it. And so I went away, and I thought, bloody madness, absolute madness. And then I was speaking at a conference in Monaco, at the Monaco Yacht Club, to a maritime audience, all, the, all suppliers to the marine industry. And when I, when I speak with slides, I use some photographs from the expeditions to make points. Um, you know, if I just showed you a picture of an office, it's boring, isn't it? Where I show you a picture of me and my son hanging off a mountain at 10,000 feet, and I talk about trust. You know, it kind of makes the point. I've got one picture where Matt, Matt, my son's called Matt, Matt and I are crossing between two mountain peaks, and the drop is 2,000 meters, and we're just on a rope. And, and, you know, I make the point that when he says to me, is that rope safe? The answer is either yes or no. It's not maybe. <laughs> maybe it's not a good answer so I talk about being clear in business I talk about communication you know making sure what is said is what is understood and anyway so I'd use some of these some expedition pictures to make a point I was talking about leadership and then there was open Q&A and somebody at the back said what's your next expedition and I actually didn't have one plan but I'd just been speaking to my mate Pete Van Ketz and I said well I'm thinking about rowing across the Atlantic Anybody want to come with me? Yeah, I got about that reaction then as well. <laughs> and, um, and then that was the end of it. And then afterwards, this guy came to me and he said, um, I'd come with you. Are you thinking of going? I said, no. <laughs> I said, I don't know anything about the ocean. I don't know anything about rowing. I don't know anything about he said, oh, but we could do it. We could do it. And I went away and I thought about it. The more I thought about it, the more excited I got. And I do all these things with my son. My son is... Uh, old's Matt now, 32, I think. I should know, but I don't. 32. I do all this stuff with my son. I've been doing it since he was 12. And we've done all these things together. And it's a privilege to do it with my son. My daughter's amazing as well, just to be clear. My daughter runs one of my companies. She's, she's a lady with um, three-year-old twins who still seems to answer the phone all hours God sends and do more work than three other people. <laughs> so she's amazing. So they're very different personalities, but... If I asked her, does she want to come from a mountain? She said, well, what shall I wear? Well, so, so I said to Matt, hey, how do you fancy rowing the Atlantic? And he said, no. <laughs> well, this is a guy who's done all this stuff. You know, he's, he's done all these amazing things. Then he's gone off and done his own bunch as well. He was asked to, he carried the Olympic flame at the Olympics in 2012 because he'd raised a quarter million quid for charity. So, you know, he's done his own stuff. And I said, how do you fancy around the Atlantic? He said, no. I said, why? He said, it's pain, pain, and more pain, and then you die. 
I said, yeah, but other than that, he said, no. So I spoke to this other guy, a guy called Will, who'd asked me the question, and we got talking, and I thought, you know what, we could do, we could do this thing. We could do this thing. But the way I'm going to do it is we're going to write a thousand-day plan for it. I'm going to run it as if it was a business. We're going to run it like a business project because we've got to train. There's a whole bunch of qualifications you have to get because, um, strangely enough, the Coast Guard doesn't like it if a bunch of blokes jump in a little rowing boat and decide to head off. You know, they don't, they don't let you go. You, you've got to pass all these qualifications. So there's a whole bunch of stuff you've got to do. And then I put it on, I got four, four, there were four of us, and I put it on social media. The phone rang within 30 seconds. My son never rings me, never rings me. 30 seconds, Matt, hello. What's this? I said, what's what? He said, what's this about the boat? I said, yeah, we're going. He said, what about me? <laughs> I said, Matt, you didn't want to come. He said, yeah, but it's real, I'm coming. <laughs> so suddenly we're a five-man crew. And we work out what the world record is. And I said to these lads, no, it's, that's not true. We start talking. And I said to these lads, what's the objective? And I'm thinking to get across safely. You know, we're going, we're going from Spain to Antigua, 100 million square miles of water. This is a, you know, not something to be sniffed at. And they said, oh, we want to break the world record. And I said, well, what? <laughs> what? I said, yeah, yeah. Well, I said, guys, guys, we're racing. The people who've set world records are Olympians. They are people who've rode or ocean rode their whole lives. We've never done it. <laughs> You are all 28, 29 years old. I'm 60 years old. Why? Look, I said, here's what we'll do. We'll run it the first time. We'll go and do it. I'll show you how to run an expedition. And then we'll cross. And then I'll drop out. And you can go and find yourself another fit 28-year-old and do it again, set the world record. I said, no, no, we're going to do it. So this book is the story of how did we actually put a team together and prepare ourselves and prepare our boat so that when we turned up on the start line, the company who build ocean rowing boats, and they're very, they're a very specialized boat. Um, you know, they're, they're not very big. You'll see when you get the book. They're really not very big. I mean, it's just, it is a rowing boat with a little cabin at each end where we hide. Um, it's a little tiny boat. And, but when we turned up on the start line, the, the company that build all these boats said to us, that's the best prepared boat we've ever seen. They actually said that. We thought, great. Which you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna be successful, be successful in stages. Make sure that you you understand. So, are you fully trained? I mean, you know, I, I'm an old man, but I trained within an inch of my life to get fit enough to do this thing. And we row two hours on, two hours off. That's it. Two hours on, two hours off. Two hours off. So imagine going on. If you go in the gym, go and sit on the on the rowing machine and row for two hours. Two hours, as hard as you can, then get off it. Then go and have a cup of coffee, have a nap, two hours later get back on and row another two hours. And then get off it, go and have a cup of coffee and a nap and get back on and row another, and do that for 36 days. No break, there is no break. And that's what it takes. Wow. So this, this, this book, so this book I wrote you know, um, it's not even about the row. On, on one side of the page, you've got the row diary and the fun we had, like on the first night. On the very first night, we got hit by a storm. And we're 100 miles offshore. 
Right? Nobody's going to come and get us. And people say, what about, and I joked, I said, oh yeah, we have a big yacht next to us and we get off at night, we go home, we have a shower and a steak. And they said, you're serious? I said, no, it's just us. We don't see another boat, that's it, it's just us. And the boat is only this far off the water. It only sits 300 mil above the water. And on the first night, in pitch black, um, we, we got struck by a storm with waves twice as high as this, twice as high as this, swells, and then the one wave broke over us and snapped two of the oars, snapped, well, snapped one oar. And these are carbon fiber oars with shafts as thick as my arm. The first one snapped. Sorry? Yeah, well, we had two spare oars, luckily. <laughs> but the, the oars snapped, and we were completely out of control. And, and for four, five, six hours, I told you I'm a structural engineer. On my two hours off, I went into the cabin where we can lock ourselves in, a little tiny space, like getting into the boot of a car. And you, you lock yourself in, turn the handle, lock yourself in. And I was lying in that cabin. I'd just taken all my wet gear off, and we have a personal beacon on that if we fall in the water, it's so that somebody can find us. Who's going to find you? No helicopter can come out that far. Nobody's going to come and find you. It's, it's basically so they can identify your body when they find it. But I lay in that little cabin listening to the boat thinking if i hear it start to squeak i know it's going to break up i know it's going to fall apart and the but i can't describe the battering you've got to imagine being in this little it's it's about as long as this table about that big so that's your whole world with waves like this crashing on top of you snapping your oars yeah. and um i i honestly i've been in a few dodgy situations i i honestly thought if we get through this alive we're doing well I, that's what I thought for about two hours. I thought, this is, this is really touch and go now. Anyway, the point is, this book is about how do you take business processes and apply them to anything? Because I've run big businesses, I've run small businesses, I've created businesses, I've transformed businesses, and I just use the same process. Commit, connect, create. Keep it simple, do the basics. Don't try and do too much. Most people try to do too much. If you just focus on six or eight things and deliver them really, really well, you will make 80% of the progress. And, and when you get on to the 20%, it's the same again, because the world's moved on by then. So you know, your next six or eight will take you another 80% of the way. And this book was how we, um, we use that approach. And, and there's 80 business lessons at the end of each chapter I've, I've, and, and you've got some journals about what I was actually thinking when certain things were happening. Um, but the 80 business lessons are how do you take that back into your business or into your life? And, you know, what did we learn from the experience? And we, we landed in Antigua um, 23 hours ahead of the existing world record. And this is the proudest bit. That's the Guinness Book of Records. And, and this turned up. It's a, big, it's, a big, it's a big card thing. And it turned up on my birthday. I got this big card on my birthday. And my wife went, oh, who's that from then? <laughs> well, wouldn't you like to know? <laughs> <laughs> and um, I didn't know. It was literally on my birthday. And I, I, thought it, I thought it was some card from somebody. And I opened it up. And it was the Guinness Book of Records certificate. And we're in the Guinness Book of Records. So... It, it, 
I believe that ordinary people can achieve extraordinary results, but you've got to have a focus. You've got to be clear about what you want to achieve. And it was these guys who said to me, no, Kev, we're going to break the world record. And you, you either fit in or <laughs> get off because <laughs> that's what we are going to do. So you better be part of it. And I didn't believe it. I mean, I said yes, but I didn't believe it because it's a hell of a, hell of a challenge. And I, and I thought, oh, blimey, will we ever do it? But when we were about 25 days in, because we, we've got um, satellite phones, we can speak to race control. It's a race. Um, and they can monitor us. Each, each boat has a transmitter on. Um, and they can tell where we are and the speed we're going and this, that, and the other. And they said to us, when we were 10 days out from Antigua, they said to us, you guys are on world record pace. And um, great. I mean, that's just the spurt of energy you need at that point because it wrecks you. I mean, it absolutely wrecks your body. I mean, look, I'm not saying I'm slim, but I lost two stone in 35 days on that crossing. So, you, you know, you, it... it hammers your body. Um, I was showing somebody earlier on, I still can't use, I still can't open my hands because the tendons have been damaged by the oars. So... And what's even more crazy is you're doing it again, aren't you? I'm doing the Pacific next. <laughs> <laughs> he, he said to me, how was, how was Hawaii? I'm, uh, I'm rowing there next year. Yeah, yeah, I know he'd been to Hawaii. I said... For, yeah, uh, you go. Peter's going, yeah. <laughs> Peter's going for me. <laughs> I've already got the boat. The boat's in my garden. We're starting work on the boat. I was supposed to go next year. I was supposed to go in 24, but for a couple of reasons. One, my son's just been accepted onto a, an MSC program, so we can't spoil that. And two, I've torn the ligaments in my knee, so I have to take a bit easier at the moment. We're going to go in 25. But yeah, we're going to Hawaii. The only difference is we're rowing there. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that'll be fun. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, look, I mean, it's, it's Kevin been absolutely amazing. You know, hopefully you find that super inspirational. Hey, everybody, Adam here, and I hope you loved today's episode. Hope you thought it was fabulous. And if you did, I'd like to ask you a small favour. Could you jump over and go and give the podcast a review? Of course, I'll be super grateful if that is a five-star review. We're putting our all into this podcast for you, delivering you the content, giving you the secrets. And if you've enjoyed it, please go and give us a review and talk about what your favorite episode is, perhaps. Every single month, I select someone from that review list to come to one of my exclusive Academy Days and have lunch with me on the day, meeting hundreds of my clients. So if you want that to be you, then you're going to be in with a shout if you go and give us a review on iTunes. Please, of course, do remember to subscribe so you can get all the up-to-date episodes. Peace and love, and I'll see you very, very soon. Thank you.